Welcome back to Oliver's Insights, part of the Simplifying Investing podcast series. It's great to have you here. A reminder that this podcast is general in nature and hasn't taken your circumstances into account. It's important you consider your personal circumstances and speak to a financial advisor before deciding what's right for you. Any general tax information provided is provided as a guide only. And with that out of the way, here's Shane. G'day everyone and welcome to this week's edition of the Oliver's Insights podcast series. Uh, This week we're not going to look at monetary policy, we're going to look at fiscal policy in Australia because the new federal government has just released their budget update. In fact it almost looks like a full budget. Of course we did have a budget earlier this year back in March and of course that was very much a political document ahead of the upcoming election at the time and of course this one is somewhat the opposite of that because it's, uh, it's straight after the election. So the government has taken a somewhat different stance to the previous government. So a bunch of things in this budget worth noting. The first one is that the government has implemented its election policies. No surprise there. Um, You'd expect that. But I guess the good news is that it's not only done that, but it expects lower budget deficits this year and next, thanks to another revenue windfall and various budget savings. In fact, it's offset all of the spending measures that it announced with savings. So all of the revenue windfall has gone straight through to the budget bottom line. Now, of course, the downside, though, is that future years show a significant deterioration as structural spending pressures, higher interest rates and lower productivity growth impact. But as the Treasurer has foreshadowed, this is largely a bread and butter budget with significant reform left for next year's budget, which, of course, will come around soon enough in May. Now, of course, one of the key measures, of course, you would have heard of most of these in the May election, the implementation of the childcare subsidy rate, or it's been increased to 90% uh, for the first child and eligibility has been expanded. There, of course, has been a, an extension of paid parental leave to six months with widened eligibility, more money for Medicare, aged care, health, the NDIS and defence. Uh, p- prescription drugs have been reduced in price by cutting the PBS co-payment from $42.50 to $30.00. There's tax incentives in various forms for electric cars. There's a reinvigoration of workplace bargaining. And of course, that was an outcome of the Skills Summit a month or so ago. More spending on TAFE, more university places, increased infrastructure spending. Now, of course, governments say that every year for the last few years. Uh, In many cases, they're just uh, highlighting what they're already doing. Um, But of course, that infrastructure spending is continuing under the new government. Now, of course, they have taken a bit of an axe to some programs of the previous government and reprofiled in their own language to their own preferred infrastructure programs. There's also increased aid for our near neighbours in the Pacific and Southeast Asian countries and various housing support measures. I think one of the good things to note about the new government is that it seems to be focusing more on the supply side. There are some demand side measures in there. I'm not a great fan of those because they just push up prices. If you do anything to put more buying power or spending power into the hands of a new home buyer, of course, after a while, that that just results in higher prices. But this time around, there is more focus on supply. And of course, the government has announced a new housing accord to build one million new homes over five years. Now, that, of course, sounds bigger than it really is. Uh, We come close to that um, over five years anyway, or we should. But of course, they're trying to uh, put that as an aspiration and most years we want to run a little bit below the implied 200 
thousand houses a year. So if we can reach that, that's probably a pretty good outcome. And of course, they have also set up the National Housing Supply and Affordability Council. Now, one of the things worth noting, I think, in all of this is that the federal government has set aside $350 million in funding to help incentivize institutional, including superannuation fund, investment in delivering an extra 10,000 affordable homes. Now, that's on top of the 30,000 affordable homes they were proposing uh, as flowing from the National Housing um, Supply Fund. Now, of course, uh, it remains to be seen whether all of this stuff will happen, but if it does, it is a move in the right direction. That's what we really need, a focus on increasing the supply of homes. There's also, of course, the startup of various off-budget funds. Of course, the 10 billion fund to build that 30,000 affordable homes over five years, 20 billion fund to boost renewable energy infrastructure, and a $15 billion fund uh, focusing on manufacturing and other industries. Now, of course, all that spending was offset by various savings. Cuts to public sector spending, cuts in regional infrastructure funds and community grants programs, a crackdown on tax avoidance, and increased tax on multinationals. There's a few other things in there which I won't go into, but they were the main ones. The government has, as already highlighted or noted, um, deferred any decision on the Stage 3 2024 tax cuts. But of course, I'm sure that's going to come up in the years ahead, given the blowout in the spending measures um, or spending pressure over the medium term. So what do the government's budget economic assumptions look like? To me, they look fairly reasonable. The government has downgraded its growth assumptions for 23-24. I think that was inevitable given the inflation pressures and the surge in interest rates we've seen over the, over the period since the last budget back in March. Um, obviously, the government has also had to revise up somewhat its inflation forecast, but not as much as you would expect because back in late July, they already foreshadowed an expectation that inflation would rise to 7.75% this year. What they have changed, though, is the pace of decline is now slower. Now, flowing from that pickup in inflation, which obviously impacts people's real spending power and results in higher interest rates, the government has logically cut its growth forecast for 23-24 to 1.5%. Uh, back in July, they expected 2%, and back in the budget, it was forecast to be 2.5% so over the course of the next, uh, I guess, next 18 months, two years. So those numbers seem reasonable to me. Um, hopefully the unemployment rate doesn't go much higher than that. To be honest with you, we are a little bit more optimistic that inflation will fall faster and therefore we don't quite see the unemployment rate rising to that degree, but nevertheless it will get above 4%. Now what do we make of the budget deficit projections? And of course this is the big focus. Whenever a budget comes out in the old days, the treasurer, Paul Keating, back in the 80s, would pull a rabbit out of the hat, producing a much lower number. In this case, the budget number was actually leaked. It was in the media um, prior to the budget being released. Now, of course, the good news is that the budget numbers for the next two years, just like the last year, are coming in better than expected. There's a bunch of reasons for that. Yes, there's increased spending associated with the implementation of the government's uh, election promises, but there has been some savings, and that's come from a couple of sources. Um, I did note those savings earlier, cut to public sector spending, uh, crackdown on tax avoidance, uh, increased tax on multinationals and so on, those things help. So whatever the government has spent over the next two years, it's largely offset by savings. So that's good news. The other point to note is that there's been a massive boost to government revenue flow as a result of a bunch of things. Higher commodity prices, lower unemployment, which means more tax revenue from personal tax collections and higher inflation. All of those things tend to boost revenue faster than they boost spending. In the jargon, we call that parameter changes. But of course, for the next uh, couple of years, it's actually been quite positive. In fact, for this financial year, it
has the effect of reducing the budget deficit by $42 billion and next year by $12 billion. And as I mentioned, the government has largely flowed that through straight to the budget bottom line such that as a result, the budget deficit for this financial year is now projected to be $37 billion down from $78 billion projection back in March. And likewise, the budget deficit for next financial year is now put at $44 billion, down from nearly $57 billion back in March. So good news on that front. The bad news though, I guess, is that the government has substantially increased their spending projections for the subsequent years and of course out into early next decade. And that is as a result of several things. Firstly, they're assuming that the commodity prices revert to what the Treasury refers to as more realistic levels, um, particularly after the boom of the last year on the back of the Ukraine war. Um, they've also lowered their long-term productivity growth assumptions, which of course lowers growth in the tax base because it affects economic growth. And of course, they've also made greater allowance for structural spending pressures. These are the things we regularly hear about. The increased spending on the NDIS, the National Disability Insurance Scheme, aged care, health, defence and interest costs. And of course, the interest cost is a relatively new one as a result of higher interest rates. But the main factor in all of that is the NDIS. So as a result, the budget deficit numbers from 2024 onwards look worse than previously projected. And that continues all the way out to 2030, 32. Uh, so not very good news on that front. I guess you could argue, well, the government is just adopting a more realistic approach to allowing for those spending measures. Now, of course, that then has the effect when you flow it through that the budget deficit sort of gets stuck around the 2% of GDP level off for the next 10 years. Better in the short term, but as we go from 24-25 onwards, it's actually worse. And of course, that then has the effect of resulting in somewhat higher level of debt, public debt, over the subsequent years. So it's a little bit better in the short term. That's because the budget deficits have been smaller, but beyond the next couple of years, it's actually worse. And of course, the government will still be able to say, well, they've been left with $1 trillion worth of debt because we're still expected to go through that level in the next year or so. So how do we assess all of this? First thing is to look at the winners and losers. There's a bunch of winners, parents, students, medicine users, patients, electric car buyers, NBN users, aged care residents, pensioners, new home buyers, skilled migrants, neighboring countries, electric car buyers, and the environment. But unlike in the March budget, there are more losers this time, including multinationals, tax avoiders, foreign investors, federal lawbreakers, consultants, contractors, and travel agents to the public sector. I reckon you'd say a bunch of positive things about this budget. The first one is, that yes, they've implemented their policies, but they've done so in a way that still results in lower budget deficits for the next couple of years. That I think has the effect of not putting more pressure on the Reserve Bank to raise interest rates. It doesn't add to inflation in that sense at a time when inflationary pressures are at their highest. Um, and so there, in other words, there's nothing like trustonomics in here. That reference to PM Liz Truss's uh, attempt to jumpstart the UK economy at a time when it was already relatively strong causing inflation. Um, from a month or so ago. So there's nothing like that in the Australian federal government's budget. The spending measures you could also aim, are aimed at boosting workforce participation, particularly those on childcare and parental leave or productivity. Infrastructure and skills measures help do that. Um, so that's a positive. There's also a realistic attempt to highlight the structural pressure on the budget, which I think is a good thing. The commodity price assumptions, you could argue, maybe still a little bit too pessimistic. For example, they're assuming the iron ore price will fall to $55 in the next six to nine months. Uh, Maybe, maybe not. Um, if it doesn't, of course, and the other prices stay up, particularly for uh, for steaming coal, 
then of course uh, that will be a bit of upside to the budget revenue numbers. And of course, I reckon there's good news on the housing front. This government is making more of an effort on the supply side rather than just giving money to first-time buyers, which I think is a good thing. Now, of course, the problem in the budget, though, is the massive blowout in the budget spending numbers uh, in the years ahead. This has been a feature of budgets for the last couple of years now, that every, every time we look at them, the longer-term spending numbers as a share of the economy are higher. For example, over the next few years, the government sees spending going from 27% up to 28% of GDP. Prior to the pandemic, it was around just below 25%. So we're looking at a much bigger government sector as a share of the economy that can adversely impact productivity, but it also needs to be funded. If we don't find ways to fund that, either by cutting spending in other areas uh, or raising revenue, then we could run into longer-term problems with the budget, and we don't really want to see that happen. So that is a long-term challenge, and I think it will come up, certainly, with the May budget next year. Now, what does it mean for the Reserve Bank? I don't think it means much at all. There's no great stimulus here. There is. This is not like the UK of a month ago, so we're not going to see a crisis on that front. I don't think it will change what the Reserve Bank does. We still, still see a rate hike in the next week of 0.25%, um, obviously, uh, with a risk that some might follow more from that, but we do see the cash rate still peaking either at 2.85% with a risk that it gets to 3.1%, and that becomes the peak. What does it mean for major asset classes in Australia? Well, to be honest with you, I don't see a huge impact. It's not going to change the outlook for cash and term deposit rates. I don't think it's going to have a dramatic impact on bonds, bond yields. Uh, the main factor there has been the upswing in inflation, and I don't see the budget adding much to that. Share markets, I think the share market will move on and focus on other things. Property, bunch of messes there which may improve affordability in the long term and make property more affordable. That would be good news, but in the short term it's going to be dominated by the impact of high, higher interest rates. And finally for the Aussie dollar, I don't see a big impact. So that's a wrap. That's my view on the budget. I thought it was pretty responsible in the short term, implementing the government's policies but not doing so in a way that adds to inflation. So that I think is good news. I hope that was of some use. Until we meet again, adios. To keep up to date with Dr. Oliver and the Simplifying Investing podcast series, be sure to subscribe to your favorite streaming platform. That way you'll never miss an episode. All topics discussed today are general in nature and haven't taken your personal circumstances into account. It's important you consider taking tailored financial advice that is relevant to your own situation before making any important financial decisions.